Well, tonight uh, we're in Revelation chapter 5, and uh, again, you can subscribe to patreon.com forward slash creation instruction if you'd like to hear uh, a lot more, uh, not just of the Bible studies, but our DVDs, the books that we have, and any other special things that might go on as well. And there you can hear the audio as well as video so anyway, as I said, Revelation chapter 5, I'm not going to go through the, the chiastic structure that we have here, but uh, as I've mentioned before, just in case you want to see it, here it is, but the colors will kind of coordinate to show you that the beginning and the end kind of match up, whether it be the whole book of Revelation or just uh, each chapter Pretty much almost you can see a chiastic structure that is there. Now, getting started though, in chapter 5 verse 1 it says, And I saw in the right hand of him who sat on the throne a scroll written inside and on the back, sealed with seven seals. Now, some things were written upon the backside of the outermost scroll. There's even a word for this by the ancients. It's so common in archaeology and that is called an epistograph. And so, in other words, this seal has writing on both sides. Now, Ezekiel saw something similar, I believe, when we look here in Ezekiel chapter 2 verse 10. It says, then he spread it before me, this is a scroll again, and there were writing on the inside and on the outside, and written on it were lamentations and mourning and woe. Now, here in Ezekiel, we don't know. This was a vision that he was having. This isn't something that is, um, you know, historical. It was more prophetic. So I think very likely that this is the type of thing that is going on here in Revelation, that he may have saw the exact same thing because in Revelation, we're constantly seeing that there's nothing new. It was something that was already written before. Now, just like in Daniel, we saw that the words of the scroll were written or sealed then until the time of the end. Uh, here, and we're going to see that nobody can read it except for Jesus Christ. And when this scroll is going to be opened up in chapter 6, what we're going to see are Basically, mourning, woe, and lamentations, the same thing that Lamentations talks about. Now, being sealed shows not only the sureness of it, but also the authority of it. Because back in those days, you would take some clay or uh, sometimes some uh, melted wax, and you would seal where the roll would come together over the top as it would come. You seal it together. Now, sometimes people have said there were seven seals all the way across. That's not how it was. Oftentimes what they would do is they would have one seal and then a signet ring or whatever, the sign of authority, would be marked inside that little hot wax. When you broke that seal, you could unroll or unravel the scroll to a certain point where another seal was there. And then you could break that one and unroll it a little bit more. And so, in essence, you were only getting to see a little bit at a time. Now, why this was done for sure, I'm not, I don't know whether it was maybe this way you could have different uh, letters to different people, whether it was uh, a matter of timing so that certain things were supposed to be revealed at certain times, I don't know. But nonetheless, in this case, that is true. That until one is fulfilled, the other is not opened. 
And we'll talk more about that when we get there to chapter 6. But uh, one scroll, and it is sealed seven times, and that seal is a sign and a picture of the ultimate authority. Uh, God is our creator, and because of that, he has the right to the very creation itself. We see that Roman wills were often sealed like this, and this is a picture, I think, of a Roman will. In essence, well, it's a Roman will is picturing this very thing. This isn't a Roman will. This is the deed to the earth. This is the actual uh, ownership, and God is coming back to take ownership of it and to pronounce the, the final reading of what's supposed to happen. And so it's in the right hand of him who sat on the throne. Who is that? We just saw him in chapter 4 being described, and that was God, the Almighty, in a sense, coming in, taking his throne. The judge is taking his seat, and now the, he is basically pronouncing judgment. And that judgment, the verdict, you might say, is in his hand. And what we're going to see next, though, in verse 2, it says, I saw a strong angel proclaiming with a loud voice, Who is worthy to open the scroll and to loose its seals? Well, this strong angel, we don't know who it is, but interestingly, uh, many in the Jewish community, they attribute uh, Gabriel as being the strong angel because his name signifies strong or mighty, Uh, literally the, the mighty one of God. Now, we also have the archangel Michael who is strong. I I don't know for sure who this is. We don't know. All we know is that it's an angel who is very strong and has some, you know, authority here. But he proclaims in a loud voice, who is worthy to open the scroll and to loose its seals? No one in heaven or on earth or under the earth was able to open the scroll or even to look at it. And so there's a problem presented here. It's like, this scroll, we need it open because this is the deed to the earth. Who owns it? What's going to happen? How are we going to know? How is the end going to come if no, nobody can open this? Who's worthy? And there, it's almost like a, a scene of um, intensity and expectation. Who's worthy? We need somebody. Well, anyway, we, before we get the answer to that, I want you to see that nobody in heaven, on earth, or under the earth. That basically is saying in all of creation, in the entire universe, there is nobody that can open this scroll, at least so far. And so uh, there may be an allusion to the authority of the the person in charge of the temple because we read in some Jewish writings here as well in the the Mishnah Tamid, uh, section 4 and uh, basically part of section 5 as well, it says this, that the priests who were attending the parts of the service say, whosoever is worthy, let him come and do so and so. And here we see, who is worthy? Let him come and exercise the service of the temple. And in essence, we see that that is what God is going to do. So I, I think a Jew in the first century reading this may very well have had a connection to that, uh, to what was going on in the temple and the priests, but just to kind of add a little uh, fact there. Anyway, um, nobody can open this. 
Who is worthy is another important statement here. It doesn't say who is willing, but who is worthy. There are a lot of people out in society that are willing. There are a lot of people who not only are willing, but want to open that scroll. People who don't have the authority. People like Adolf Hitler, Hillary Clinton, maybe even people like you know Donald Trump. It doesn't matter your authority, the most powerful person in the world, the man with the most money in the world, George Soros, or any of these other global elites, they cannot open this scroll or even look at it. And that ought to bring us great encouragement. I think I talked about this a couple of weeks ago, but uh, Pastor Chad, I heard a message with him talking and one of the things he was saying is when the disciples had been arrested, they were taken before, uh, you know, Gamaliel and basically the church leaders. And Gamaliel, now who Paul studied under basically, they're saying, he goes, guys, remember there was this guy named Thaddeus and he, he gathered, gathered a whole bunch of people around him and it came to naught. His followers were killed and they were spread out. Another guy came along and the same thing happened. And he said, I advise you to do this. Be careful when you make the decision of what to do with these men. Because if this is of man, it's going to come to naught. But if it's of God, you're only fighting against yourself. And, and, and ultimately, you're only going to get hurt. And so they took the, the advice and they let the disciples go. And what Pastor Chad said that I'd never made this connection before, but I thought it was so good, is he said, the gospel cannot be thwarted. Man can scheme, and right now in our world, we see all kinds of scheming going on with these global elites who want to take charge and want to have authority. But let me tell you, if it's of man, just let it run its course, because it will not succeed. I don't care who it is in this world, you cannot stop the gospel of Jesus Christ. And that should give us such encouragement that we are the ones who know the one who is worthy and who is willing. And if you are on his side, then you know that you're going to be the one that wins and there is nothing that we need to fret about. Just let the world do its thing and you keep focused on serving the one who is worthy, worthy of your glory, honor, and praise. So in Isaiah 29 here, it says this in verse 11, for you this whole vision is nothing but words sealed in a scroll. And if you give the scroll to someone who can read and say to him, read this please, he'll answer, I can't, it's sealed. That's what we're seeing here, the same exact picture. So once again, Revelation is helping uh, being understood by looking at some of the things in the Old Testament here that seem to be saying the same thing. But also don't forget that nobody can read that except for the one who has authority. And he is on our side if you are a believer in Jesus Christ and have following or are following him. I was talking to some kids here this last week when we had our museum out. And I was just telling them, you know, believing in Jesus Christ is not enough. If all you do is believe in Jesus and recognize that he came and died on the cross, that's not enough because even the devil knows that. We also need to follow Jesus Christ, to love Jesus Christ. And when we love him, the natural result is to indeed follow him. Follow the one who has authority, who is worthy, and who can throw your body and soul in hell. 
uh, just that's what scripture says. I think it's in Matthew or John where it says, you know, don't fear these men. Don't fear George Soros. Don't fear these, uh, the, the devil even. If you want to fear somebody, fear the one who has authority and the authority to bless you in this life and take you to an eternity or send you to hell for an eternity because he is the only one that has that authority and the only one that we should fear and have that kind of honor and respect and reverence for. All right, here in verse four it says, so I wept much because no one was found worthy to open and read the scroll or to look at it. So we just read that nobody can open it, but now we see another important piece. So I wept, I wept much, why? Why is he weeping because nobody can open this scroll? That seems like something, you know, no big deal to, to whine about. Well, it is because if somebody doesn't come and take ownership of this earth, there is no redemption for it. There's no way it can be healed and be brought back to the, its original created perfect state. And so he weeps much because he's longing for the day that creation can be restored. And we too should be weeping and praying, Lord, come, please, come, Lord Jesus, come soon and open up this scroll. Because there are so many evils going on in this world right now. Think of all of the girls that are being sex trafficked. Think of all the people who have cancer, who are suffering, who are fighting in war and battles. And it's like, Lord, how long until you come and redeem this earth, redeem us from this earth? from death, sin, the curse, the devil, our own flesh. And so this shows that there's an urgency and a desire for this scroll to be opened. That too ought to give you guys some sort of peace about this book of Revelation. So many people read Revelation, it's like, oh, I don't want to read that because it's just too depressing and you know, it's just too scary and I don't want to be around when all that happens. But yet here we see John is saying, I want this opened. I want this to take place because it means redemption for us. Remember, the Lord's coming back. The judge, the one who has all this authority, he's on our side. And we should want that. Just like anybody who goes to a courtroom wants to have a judge rule in their favor. We don't want the, the, the court case to continue on forever and ever. You want judgment to take place because we know the results. You already know what's written on that little piece of paper for the verdict. And if you know that it's in your favor, why wouldn't you want it to be opened up and read so the whole world can hear that you have been proclaimed innocent by the blood of the Lamb? Now, the title here as well, it goes on in verse 5, but one of the elders said to me, do not weep, don't worry, in essence, Behold, the lion of the tribe of Judah, the root of David, has prevailed to open the scroll and to loose its seven seals. Now this title, Lion of Tribe of Judah, that was given prophetically of Jesus way back in Genesis chapter 49, verses 8 through 10. A prophecy of Christ. And so we know who this is. This is our Messiah, Yeshua, Jesus. The other thing is he's called the root of David. Now, <clears throat> the root of David can be seen in two different ways. Is this meaning that Jesus, our Messiah, came from David, or, as it seems to be saying here, he is the root of David. If you've got David and David has got a root to it, the root basically brings forth David. 
And I think that's how it's really meant to be understood here, that he is not the root from David, but he is the root of David. That even David, this great man, would not exist if it wasn't for the root, the creator of all things, Jesus Christ. And so a very important word there to uh, I make the distinction of, not from. And in essence, this line of the tribe of Judah, this root of David that is coming, this is the hero of our faith. This is the hero of heaven coming. And we kind of picture this lion, a strong, almighty. That's what we kind of want to see in our heads. But as we're going to continue, you're going to see that's not what the hero of heaven looks like. We'll get to that in a moment. We also see here, I have there Romans chapter 15, verse 12. It says, and again, Isaiah says, the root of Jesse will spring up. One who will arise to rule over the nations. The Gentiles will hope in him. Same type of thing. It is the root of Jesse is going to spring up. It isn't just that from Jesse is going to come the Messiah, which there is that meaning for sure, but more so, David, Jesse, all the way back to Adam are there because the breath of God gave them life. So, uh, the seventh seal here is basically, I should say, the seven seals of the root uh, or of the scroll seven seals and it's mentioned here again that seven is important because it's kind of a seven scripturally is a picture of finality and completeness and so when seven seals are broken it ushers in completeness it ushers in the finality now one other point before we move on is this um the Jews always viewed their authority, in essence, was pictured because of their ability to give life and death. So ever since the days of Noah, the Jews believed in capital punishment. And if there was a crime that went on, we could punish it by death. Well, something interesting happened in 12 AD, and that was the Romans had taken uh, control and they made a ruling, an edict that said, you no longer can practice capital punishment. This is why when Jesus was taken before Pilate, we see that they say, you know, we, uh, the law does not permit us to kill him. And so in essence, they were trying to get Pilate to make the decision because they did not have the authority or the power. In essence, their scepter, the scepter of Judah had departed. And that is exactly what we see prophesied in Scripture, that when the scepter departs from Judah, the Messiah would come. Well, many believe that in 12 AD, that was the marking of the scepter departing. As a matter of fact, history records that when this ruling went out, the Jews went out in the streets and they wept and they mourned and they wailed and they threw dust and ash on their heads because they were mourning so greatly because they understood that this was a sign that we have no authority anymore. Now, I can't say it for sure. There's no way to prove this, but it does seem this would also be around the time that our Messiah Jesus came into the temple at 12 years old and was teaching with authority at the temple there. This time that his parents uh, didn't know where he was for three days. Well, 
I find it just ironic, perhaps, that when the Bible predicted that when the, the scepter departs from Judah, the Messiah would come, that the very year that that scepter is departing, possibly, is when Jesus, our Messiah, came into the temple and in, in some ways began his ministry there as a child. It wouldn't be until he was about 30 years old that he comes and really officially starts his ministry in that way. But yet he was teaching and the Messiah had come at this time. So kind of a neat little picture there. Anyway, moving on here, one other uh, little tidbit to share. When Jesus was hung on the cross, we see that they had three different languages here. The, the, the Greek, you had the uh, Hebrew and Aramaic that <coughs> the sign above Jesus' head, head said, you know, <coughs> Jesus, the, the Nazareth, Jesus from Nazareth, and then it says King of the Jews. Now, the Pharisees, the Sadducees, they were all upset and they were saying, no, don't, don't write that, write that. He claimed to be, you know, King of the Jews. And Pilate says, well, I have written what I have written. There may be another reason that he, they were so upset with this sign. Because <clears throat> not only was Jesus claiming to be the son of the, or the king of the Jews, but he was claiming to be God. And they wouldn't have taken that to Pilate. Pilate wouldn't have cared about that, so they wouldn't have mentioned it. But I want you to see here the top line. This is what was written above Jesus' head. You see here, it, it basically says, Yeshua HaNevarim, Vemelech ha Yahudim. That is Jesus the Naz of Nazareth, King of the Jews. Well, if you look at the very first letters of each one of these words, Yeshua, which is all the way on the right side, that little comma looking thing, that's a yod. Then the next word, you see something that looks kind of like, uh, you know, a, a hay bale or something like that without a bottom. That's the the hay. So you have a yod, then you have a hay. Then the next word you see just almost a straight line with a little hook at the top. That's the vav. And then on the very last word, the beginning there is another uh, hay. And so what we have is yod, hay, vav, hay. Now that may not mean a lot to many of you, but that is what we call the tetragrammaton. That is yod hey vav hey is Yahweh. It is the name that the Jews don't want to pronounce, so sometimes they'll say yod hey vav hey. Okay, Yahweh. And to you and I, that may not seem like much, the first letter, but to a Jew, this is the way they think. Believe me, there is no Jew that would have looked at that and not recognized, whoa, yod hey vav hey Yahweh. And having that there would have infuriated the Pharisees. So just kind of a neat little thing here that when, when the one who is worthy, that is Jesus Christ, as you're going to see, he is God. He is king of the Jews. He is king of the universe. And so just a neat little picture there. Verse 6 goes on and it says, And I looked, and behold, in the midst of the throne and of the four living creatures, and in the midst of the elders stood a lamb, as though it had been slain, having seven horns and seven eyes, which are the seven spirits of God sent out into all the earth. So you don't have to wonder about what the seven horns and eyes are representing. He says, this is the seven spirits of God sent out to all the earth. God sees 
everything. You cannot hide anything from him. Not only does he have complete authority, but he has complete knowledge, omniscience, and therefore you, you know, if there's a king who has complete authority, you might be able to hide from him so that he doesn't know what you're doing or not doing. You can't do that with God. You can't do that with Jesus. Well, in the midst of the throne and of the four living creatures, we saw those four living creatures last week. You got the throne of God and the four living creatures around it. So right in the middle is where all of this is taking place. The elders that had fallen down and laid their crowns before him are also there. But now, standing there, is this one who looks as if he had been slain, because he had been slain, the Lamb of God. And the word lamb here is interesting because in the Greek, the word is a specific word for a lamb, a little lamb. Uh, almost like a pet. Well, that is exactly what we see the Passover lamb was. You see, the Jews would take a lamb that was a year old. They would oftentimes bring this lamb into their home and nurture and care for it and make sure that this lamb was treated perfectly. And it became the one that was sacrificed or slain the next year. And so when you were killing some lamb, it wasn't some lamb you didn't care about. This had a personal connection to it. And that's the kind of word that is used here. And so among all of this power and might, we see this lamb that looks as if he'd been slain, a little lamb, a pet. And that is the one Yeshua, Jesus, that is going to be able to open up this scroll. This is the one of whom all authority has been given. And this, my friends, is what the hero of heaven looks like. Not so much as the powerful lamb or lion, but as this lamb who had been slain. Where did his authority, why is he worthy? It's because of this. Because he conquered death. Because he rose from the dead. He shed his blood to take away our sins. And that gave him the right to open up this scroll. All authority on heaven and earth has been given to him. Now again, God is one. We see that God is sitting on the throne and now we see on the right hand of God is this one who has been slain. I can't wrap that in, you know, in my mind, the, these two individuals, these two roles, outside of the fact that, yeah, you're seeing the different roles of the same God, because God is one. And uh, we see God the Father, God the Son, God the Holy Spirit, all the same thing, different roles, different aspects of the same person. There are many analogies that have been used to describe it, like, I'm a father, I'm also a son, I'm also a grandfather. I I can be many things in different roles of my life, but I'm just one. Or I'm a body, I'm a soul, I'm a spirit. Uh, All of those kind of things all wrapped up. and None of the analogies quite fit, but I think someday we will indeed understand a little bit more about that. But anyway, um, this lamb, it's unusual for any lamb to have horns, let alone seven horns. But again, it shows the expressiveness of the power of Christ, his dominion, his government, because a horn is a picture of, of not only salvation, but of power. And so we see that this is a symbol. And again, 
it even says, if there's a symbol meant to be symbolized in Revelation, it will tell you. It says, which are the seven spirits of God. And so that, what, what, what we're seeing there is meant to be symbolic. And we hear it explained there right in the book. But as we look at this horn, uh, Luke 169 says, He has raised up a horn of salvation for us in the house of his servant David. Or we see here as well in 2 Samuel 22, verse 2, the Lord is my rock and my fortress, my deliverer. He's a redeemer. He's the one with power and strength. It goes on in verse 3, the God of my strength in whom I will trust, my shield and the horn of my salvation, my stronghold and my refuge, my savior. You save me from violence. And so this lamb having horns is a a picture of the power to redeem the strength to redeem. So, uh, very significant to understand that symbolism there, but again, it is laid out for us. So we see him both as a lion and a lamb. Both are vital to understand. So I don't want you to say that the hero of heaven doesn't look like a lion. He does, but that lion is really for those who are going to be destroyed. For us, the hero of heaven looks like the lamb that had been slain with power and might, but this little meek, humble lamb. But don't let his humility fool you or make you uh, seem that he doesn't have that power and authority or uh, uh, ability even to bring an end to this world because he's the only one worthy to take and open that scroll. Verse 8 says, Now, when he had taken the scroll, the four living creatures and the 24 elders fell down before the lamb, each having a harp and golden bowls full of incense, which are the prayers of the saints. Well, as you're going to see here coming up in the next verses, that if the song they sang is any indication of the prayers that are being offered here, we're going to see that praises were given to God for his righteous deliverance because he is redeeming and saving people. Once more, we don't need to weep because we've got somebody who can open that scroll and we should be praying that those scrolls or that scroll be opened, those seals be broken. But we'll look at that here in the next verse. But for now, I want to show you in Hebrews verse 9, verse 4 as well, there's a deeper truth in these prayers here. It says that the altar of incense, which here tells us are the prayers of the saints, that in Hebrews, it says it was in the most holy place, the inner part of that tabernacle where the Ark of the Covenant was. However, in the Old Testament, this same altar of incense is not in the most holy place. It's one room on the outside called the holy place behind the curtain. There was this huge curtain separating the holy place from the most holy place. And in the Old Testament, it's here. But now in Hebrews chapter 9, verse 4, it's in the holy place. And I think in part that's because when Jesus died, the curtain that separated those two rooms was torn. It was a barrier keeping us from the throne room of God, from the inner sanctum. And here, now we have access to it. You see, in the Old Testament, you needed a priest to basically be a mediator to take your prayers to God in a sense. Now, not, not always, that's not entirely true, but that's what the priest did. He was the mediator between you and God. When Jesus became our mediator, once for all, 
that curtain was torn so we had access into the most holy place and our prayers are now ever before him. We don't need Mary. We don't need a pastor or a priest. Jesus is our mediator and we can pray ourselves because he lives in us. And so a beautiful picture seen here talking about this uh, incense, but it's at the throne room of God, right? The very place all of this is happening in the center of the throne, at the throne room is this altar of incense. And so that's why Hebrews 9, 4 has it there because that's the reality now. In heaven, right now, there is a throne and there is an altar of incense. Our prayers are going up before it. Now, what I love about this is if you think about Zechariah or maybe even Abraham when they were praying, I'll bet that Abraham prayed for a child for years and years. And then one day when he's 100 years old, these angels come and say, hey, by the way, Sarah's going to have a child. Your prayers have been answered. And he's like, my prayers, man, I haven't prayed for that in decades. And now God is coming to answer that prayer. What I love about that is this, that our prayers, these prayers that you maybe said a decade or 20 or 30 or even 40 years ago, whatever it was, those prayers are ever before God at his throne. And maybe you have forgotten about them, but let me tell you, he has not and someday those prayers, if they haven't already been answered, will be answered. Maybe not how you expected them to be, and certainly not when you expected them to be in this case, but nonetheless they will be answered. There isn't a prayer that seems to somehow veer off and go away into nothingness to where it is not heard and taken before the throne of God. Let that encourage you that you have access through, because of Jesus Christ, to that throne room of God and your prayers are indeed being heard. Don't give up. We need to pray. Lord, come Lord Jesus. Open up these scrolls. Put an end to the, the, this evil so that we need not weep because it is not being opened. Anyway, um, just I, I think a powerful picture here knowing we do not need to have some mediator other than Jesus Christ. As Timothy says, there is one mediator between God and man, the man Jesus. Well, verse 9, they sang a new song saying, You are worthy to take the scroll and to open its seals. For you were slain and have redeemed us to God by your blood out of every tribe and tongue and people and nation and have made us kings and priests to our God and we shall reign on the earth. So just like what I was saying in verse 10, you see, he has made us kings and priests. We now get to go into the holy place, into the most holy place, because we're priests. We have access to the throne room of God, and we are going to reign on the earth with the one who owns it. I mean, this is great news. No wonder they're singing a new song. You are worthy. Because anytime there's deliverance, there is a new song that's going to spring up. And so like I said, if they're earlier, if they're, the prayers that are going before have anything to do with what they're singing, 
some of those prayers may be, Lord, save us. And now they're singing this song and praising God because you, God has redeemed us to God by your blood, by the, the Lamb's blood. Now, every tribe in tongue, that means it isn't just for the Jews, it's also for the Gentiles. And don't you Gentiles get too cocky because it says every nation, right? Every tribe. Well, guess what? These tribes, more than likely, tribes are the 12 tribes of Israel. And so don't think that the Gentiles have replaced the Jews or that God has rejected the Jews. He has hardened them in part until the full number of Gentiles has come in, it says there in Romans. But look here in Psalm 40, verse 3. Uh, it says, He put a new song in my mouth, a hymn of praise to our God. Many will see and fear and put their trust in the Lord. Okay, a new song here. Because why? Because many see and fear and put their trust in the Lord. There's some sort of deliverance going on here. Uh, Psalm 149, verse 1, Praise the Lord, sing to the Lord a new song, His praise in the assembly of the saints. Well, what are we reading about here? We're reading about the assembly of the saints. As you're going to see soon, over a hundred million angels gathered around here. Uh, we have here as well in Psalm 98.1, and you can look at Isaiah 42.10 or Revelation 14.3. It says, a psalm, sing to the Lord a new song, for he has done marvelous things. His right hand and his holy arm have worked salvation for him. His right hand. If you do a word search for right hand throughout Scripture, you're always going to see this is the hand of deliverance. And where does Jesus sit? At the right hand of the throne of God. In essence, I think you could uh, almost substitute the word Jesus every time that you put the right hand. Okay? His Jesus, his Yeshua, his holy arm has worked salvation for him. And that is why we have this, this new song being sung. God did not save you just to keep you the same. There are a lot of Christians today who think, well, yeah, I, yeah, I, I accepted Jesus. I go to church now. But they think it doesn't mean that there's any responsibility that goes on to them now that they're saved. Just live my life, but now I go to church and now I know that I'm saved. He didn't save you to keep you the same. He redeemed you by his blood to change you. So that as Romans says, that we no longer should be conformed to this world. That we serve in the new way of the spirit. And that we die to self. That we become new creations, Corinthians says. And if people are saved, but it hasn't changed them, they may not be saved. They may not know him. Because he came to, just, to, to not only redeem, but to change. And keep that in mind as well. And if you are changed, there's going to be a new song you want to sing. You're going to want to praise him from your heart. You're going to want to serve him. You're going to say, God, how can I bring you glory and honor? And we're going to be coming to that here in just a minute. Verse 11, Then I looked and I heard the voice of many angels around the throne 
many angels. The living creatures and the elders and the number of them was ten thousands times ten thousands and thousands of thousands. That's over a hundred million. Now those are just the ones that are here. That means there's a third of them that it seems aren't there. A third of them that have fallen from heaven. Because it seems that Satan took a third of the angels with him. There's a lot of angels. A lot of angels. So, again, where they get this, I don't know. But the Jews speak of 906,000 million ministering angels that stand constantly before the Lord. Okay, that comes from Yalkut Simoni, part two, FOL, volume 69, verse one. I, I don't know. All I know is that they recognize a lot of angels. Imagine that many people singing, praising in perfect harmony, you know, before the throne of God. Man, if that isn't going to make you just fall apart. We read uh, in Jude chapter 1 verses 14 and following, it says, See, the Lord is coming with thousands upon thousands of his holy ones. I think that that is what we're seeing here. When the Lord comes, his angels are standing before the throne. And then when he's going to go out, they're going to follow him. But he's coming with thousands upon thousands of his holy ones to convict Everyone of all the ungodly acts that the ungodly have done in an ungodly way. He's coming. When he comes to bring justice, those angels are with him. Thousands upon thousands of his holy ones. So, I don't think there's any question that judgment is what's about to take place here. Based on Jude. We see in Daniel 7 verse 10 up here, a river of fire was flowing, coming out from before him, before God. Thousands upon thousands attended him. Ten thousands times ten thousands stood before him. The court was seated and the books were opened. What books? Part of it is this scroll that's being opened. Psalm 68 verse 17. The chariots of God are tens of thousands and thousands of thousands. The Lord has come from Sinai into his sanctuary. So, another thing just to kind of remind you again here with the angels, we're going to see them again worshiping in third person praise, just as we saw back in chapter 4, verse 8. And also a sevenfold doxology that uh, matches the seven horns or the seven spirits that we saw. Where worthy is the Lamb who was slain to receive power, riches, wisdom, strength, honor, glory, and blessing. Sevenfold, whereas the last time we saw it in chapter 4, verse 8, it was fourfold. Um, again, there's order, hierarchy here. According to this account, you got the throne, then the, the one who sits on that throne. Basically the living God. Nearest the throne stands the Lamb on the right hand of the throne of God. Next to the Lamb 
are the four living creatures. Then next to them, the elders, the churches, perhaps, with the lampstands, the members thereof, the church, uh, the outermost ring, stands these other ministering angels. And then the saints, or the heirs of salvation, because they're the bride, the Lamb's wife, and therefore they are near Him. That the saints are right there at the throne. And why wouldn't it be if it's, you know, the king and the queen, the bride and the bridegroom are together. Oftentimes when I think about heaven, I picture me way off and I'm kind of from a distance observing this. But we're going to be there with him. Because you're his bride. That's how special you are to him. Um, worthy is Lamb who was slain to receive power, riches, wisdom, strength, and honor. How does God receive those things? From us. From us. How do we give it to Him? How do we honor God? Our yeah. Our actions. When we say the Lord's Prayer, Hallowed be thy name. What's that mean? Hallowed be thy name. To his name to be holy, yeah. How does that happen? Just by his existence? Yeah. But we're praying that in our life we bring glory and honor to his name. How does that happen? By being obedience. Laying our crown. And what's the crown? Those things that we do for the Lord. I think that there's that aspect that he gives us that with the Holy Spirit and he is in a sense wisdom and then he lives in us but he's worthy of all of those things he is yeah yeah I, I know what you're saying how do we give that to him I don't think we do but we do give him honor and we do give him praise and I was thinking about that and I thought well, how, how can I honor God? Just by being a Christian? Well, in a sense, but no. We honor God by saying, because you saved me, because you shed your blood for me, now I want to serve you. And I want to bring honor to your name by obeying you. So how do I know what obedience is? We've talked about this before. We know obedience is following the commandments of God. I don't get to choose how to bring honor. I can say, you know what? I want to honor God, so I'm going to burn this candle and I'm going to wave it before him and, you know, do seven circles around a stone. You know, I can make up whatever I want. That doesn't bring honor to God. What brings honor to God is doing what he said to do. Yeah, but he didn't. He's, he, he tells us what he told us to do. And we're going to see here later on in chapter 12 and so on that the devil is going to go after those who hold to the testimony of Jesus. In other words, salvation, faith alone, and keep his commandments. Throughout the New Testament, you will see that there is a constant duality between belief and works. 
You can't have one with either one without the other. Faith without works is dead. Works without faith is sin. That's what Romans tells us. Anything done apart from faith is sin. If you say you have faith, but you don't, you're not following the commandments, you don't have faith. If you're trying to keep the commandments and you don't have faith, you're sinning. It's hand in hand, and therefore we hold to the testimony of Jesus and keep his commandments. What are his commandments? Well, they're in Scripture. I don't get to decide what his commandments are. I don't have that right. I don't have that power, authority. Only he is worthy to tell me what is a Sabbath, when is the Sabbath, or anything else. But today we have this idea that we can bring honor to God however we want to bring honor to God. You try that with any other king in the world. If they say, I want you to honor me this way, and we say, I don't want to do it that way, I'm going to do it this way, they won't be honored by it. They won't be pleased with that. Yeah. It says here in verse 13, And every creature which is in heaven and on the earth and under the earth, alive or dead, and such as are in the sea and all that are in them, I heard saying, Blessing and honor and glory and power be to him who sits on the throne and to the Lamb forever and ever. Then the four living creatures said, Amen. And the 24 elders fell down and worshipped him who lives forever and ever. I have here Psalm 148. Praise the Lord from the earth, you great sea creatures, and all ocean depths, lightning and hail, snow and clouds, stormy winds that do his bidding, you mountains and all hills, fruit trees and all cedars, wild animals and all cattle, small creatures and flying birds. All of these things praise God. Not just human beings, but all of creation praises God. The birds that are singing, the trees that are growing, the plants that are blooming. I don't understand how all of that works outside of they do His bidding. The grass grows because He causes it to grow. And that brings glory and honor to Him. No, no. I don't. I don't. I, I don't think that like the animals necessarily, but I think all uh, spiritual beings will. Second um, Corinthians. I, I kind of think that's just Colossians one twenty. I can't remember which one this is, but I've got something wrong there. It says for all the promises of God in Him are yes, and in Him Amen. To the glory of God through us. I know, that's why there is no second Colossians, so Second Corinthians. Okay. So Yeah, I know. So for all the promises of God in Christ are yes. Amen. And that's what I like about this here in verse fourteen. Then the four living creatures said, Amen. Yes. All the promises of God 
It doesn't matter. I don't care. The world can scheme all they want. The promises of God will always be amen. You cannot stand against the gospel of God. Cannot stand against it. And so Biden can do anything he wants. And you know what? You can say amen. Because all of the you know, demonic things going on, the uh, secret meetings, the global world elites, they think that they're winning. And how dare we as a church give them the, the credibility that they can do anything. Let it run its course. And let us just do what we're called to do. Give God praise, honor, glory. Acknowledge His attributes. And it will come to naught. This is when it's going to come to naught, what we're reading about. This is worth celebrating. This is worth getting excited about. And when we get to chapter 6, you're going to see exactly how He's going to bring it to naught. And we ought to be excited. Just like when this was, he was weeping because the scroll couldn't be opened, so many of us are like, oh man, I don't know if I want to be alive when Revelation comes. I don't want to see this. I just want to go now. No, they were weeping because they couldn't get it open. We ought to be celebrating when it's opened because justice is coming to this earth and the judge is on our side. So, to recap in closing, chapter 1, we saw a basic introduction you know, of the author here. How and from whom John received it. Uh, a description of God as the judge. As I said, kind of in the robe and the golden sash. We saw a description of him standing among the churches and the angels of the churches. Chapter 2 and 3 shifted back to earth. Okay, we were in chapter 1, kind of this heavenly scene. Chapter 2 and 3, it shifts to the earth and we're seeing a description of the churches. Each church having its kind of own thing that it was kind of uh, rebuked for and also things that they were doing well for the most part. But I believe that those churches represent not only the real churches, but also a general time period of history. I am not a dispensationalist, but I think there are dispensational aspects to Scripture. And I think that this does make sense to me. As I said before, because there is no question biblically that all seven trumpets take place during the seventh seal. All seven vials take place during the seventh trumpet. So it stands to reason with the pattern that is seen that all seven seals will take place during the seventh church. Just kind of working backwards. If we are in the days of Laodicea, which the attributes of it seem to fit, you know, recognizing God as creator and all of those things that we had talked about, then that means we are on the precipice and maybe right now in heaven, this is about to take place, everything that you guys have just read that God is coming in to take his seat 
as we see there in chapter 1. Chapter 4, he goes back to heaven and the judge takes his seat. Around him are the angels and the elders worshiping and praising. And he's just kind of settling in. He's got this scroll. And then what we saw here tonight is he's going to give that scroll to Jesus. And Jesus, who judges the living and the dead, is the only one worthy to open it up. And he is going to read that. And when that happens, I think you're going to know it. Things are going to drastically change as we begin here now in the book of Revelation. You now have the introduction done. From here on out, I think it gets pretty lively and interesting. And uh, I think exciting. Because there's no need to weep because justice will be had. So... um, All of creation waits for the sons of God to be revealed. All of creation is waiting for this. When it happens, all of creation begins to praise him. So that can't be a bad thing. So those of you who are a little afraid to study Revelation and you think, oh, I don't like all this bad stuff, you need to kind of get your thought process changed a little bit because that's not what it's about. It's a good thing. Not not scary, not something to worry about, but to celebrate. So, uh, with that, that kind of concludes chapter 5. We'll get into chapter 6. A few maybe housekeeping things about chapter 6 next time uh, we get here in Revelation. So, it is all about what we truly believe. It's easy to say that we have faith in God, but it's when the rubber meets the road and we have to exercise that faith that we find out what kind of faith we have. Yeah. Yep. Yep. Come, Lord Jesus, come. So, all right, we'll close in prayer. Heavenly Father, thank you for being a God who has never left us, that our prayers are ever before you, and that those prayers are going to be answered in the way they need to be, when they need to be, but they do not fall to the ground. And so, Lord, as we pray, come, Lord Jesus, come. We just ask that you would come soon, that you would bring a stop to the evils, that you would bring and redeem those from the earth that love you, follow you, and bring honor and glory to your name. Lord, may we know you more. Reveal your word to us. Reveal your law to us that we... Don't wonder or make up our own ideas and thoughts about you, but that we let you tell us and that we are willing to lay down all of our ideas, all of our, our own uh, traditions, all of our own uh, desires, and that we just seek to follow you. We pray this in the name of Jesus. Amen.